You've heard of Grammarly, and you might think it's a fancy spell check, but people on your team have been using it and loving it for years because it does way more than you realize. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that works seamlessly across apps and websites and can write an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. When every word your team writes is clear, concise and on brand, companies can save 19 days per employee per year. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. From the heart of where innovation, money, and power collide, in Silicon Valley and beyond, this is Bloomberg Technology with Emily Chang. I'm Emily Chang in San Francisco, and this is Bloomberg Technology. Coming up in the next hour, Elon Musk tells Bloomberg there are still unresolved matters when it comes to his bid for Twitter and that he believes a recession is likely. We'll bring you our conversation with the Tesla CEO from the Qatar Economic Forum in Doha. Plus, a first for Apple workers at a retail store in Maryland vote to unionize. We'll talk to the former chair of the National Labor Relations Board about whether the iPhone makers should brace for a wave of union votes at stores around the world. And monetizing Meta, how the company is shifting priorities and its algorithms in an effort to chase TikTok. We will get to all of that in a moment, but first, U.S. stocks rebounding after last week's route erased nearly two trillion dollars from the S&P 500. Bloomer's Katie Greifeld here to walk us through the day and how tech played in it. Katie, take it away. Well, Emily, it was a big, broad rally today. You had both the S&P 500 and the Nasdaq 100 finishing 2.5% higher. That was even though you did see yields continue to climb. If you look at the 10-year Treasury yield, finishing about five basis points higher today. But still, volatility taking a breather. You're looking at the VIX there, breaking below 30 at one point, finish a little bit above 30, but still seeing some of the volatility exit the market as we saw stocks rebound today. And within that rally, two stocks caught my eye. Tesla and Twitter, of course, like you said, we heard from Elon Musk in conversation with Bloomberg News Editor-in-Chief John Micklethwaite. This was interesting. So on the Twitter front, you heard Musk, like you said, Emily, say that there's still a few unresolved matters with the Twitter deal, leaving a few question marks there. Still Twitter shares finishing 3% higher. Tesla even more so, even though we heard Musk say that 
layoffs have started at Tesla, that the company plans to lay off 10% of its salaried workforce over the next three months. Still, you saw a big rally in Tesla shares, finishing over 9% higher. But if you zoom out away from just today's rally, what's interesting is that we know that tech has had a really tough time this year. If you look at the S&P 500's top 10 largest tech companies, they're down about 30% so far this year. But cracks are starting to show up outside of tech, too. You're looking at the top 10 largest non-tech companies in the S&P 500. That's the white line. You can see now down over 2%, Emily. So we'll see if this rally that we saw at least today can sustain itself as other areas of the market begin to come under a little bit of pressure here. All right, Katie, thanks for that. I want to take a look at the crypto markets now and this weekend's Bitcoin drama downs and some ups bolstering hope for some relief from the crypto winter. Bloomberg Shanali Basik here to break it all down. So Shanali, is it going to keep up? Well, it's already starting to slow down. We are still seeing a lift in Bitcoin, Emily. But remember, Sunday brought you a more than 15% lift in Bitcoin prices. Now you're looking at about a 2% rise in the last 24 hours. Earlier today, it was about 5%. So that shows you that, that the steam is starting to slow down a little bit. But you are still in, seeing still a rise. So yes, Bitcoin higher, hovering above 20,000. Let's take a look also here at Ethereum because like Bitcoin got a massive rise on Sunday, even bigger jump than Bitcoin, but you are seeing that rise start to slow down significantly, now only up about two-tenths of one percent. Still, you do see Ethereum giving some life back to the NFT market as well. You're seeing an NFT index rise once again, and look at these volumes up quite a bit when you look at the largest marketplaces. Look at OpenSea, it's actually up much more than that right now in terms of volumes. Looks rare volumes are also higher in the last 24 hours, and interesting, Magic Eden, yes, the volumes are down over the most recent period. But today, just today, they announced a funding round that had their valuation announced as surging tenfold. And so you are seeing the NFT market come to life just as people gather at NYC NFT. There's a lot of excitement around what the future brings despite this crypto winter. Shanali, thanks for that. We've got the co-founder of Magic Eating coming up with us later in the show. You'll be back for that. Uh, meantime, Elon Musk commented on everything from Twitter to the markets to Tesla in a wide-ranging interview with Bloomberg's editor-in-chief, John Micklethwaite, at the Qatar Economic Forum in Doha. But anyone hoping to hear him commit to his deal to buy Twitter would be disappointed. Take a listen to what he had to say about that and more. There are still um, a few unresolved matters. Uh, you've, you've probably read about the, the question as to whether the number of um, fake and spam users on the system is less than 5% as Twitter claims, um, which I think is probably not most people's experience uh, on when using Twitter. Um, so we're still awaiting resolution on that matter. Um, and that, that is uh, a very significant matter. Um, so uh, we're, we're awaiting resolution on that. Um, and then, of course, uh, there is the question of uh, will the, uh, the debt portion of the uh, round uh, come together, and then will the shareholders vote in favor? So I think those are the three things that um, uh, stand in the, uh, you know, that need to be resolved before uh, the transaction can complete. What about the general state of the economy? Does that weigh on you when you think about this? I mean, you just described it. You have a super bad feeling about the economy. Are you still in that position? I just said to you earlier, Joe Biden has just come out and said that 
a recession in America is not inevitable. How do you feel about the economy? Well, I think a recession is inevitable at some point. Um, as to whether there is a recession in the near term, um, I think that is more likely than not. Uh, it certainly isn't. A, it's not a certainty, but um, it appears more likely than not. Can you set the record straight on one thing, which is this issue about the layoffs? I think you said initially that Tesla, 10% of the workforce would be cut, then 10% of salary would be cut, then salary would stay flat and overall headcount would go up. What, what, what is the number? I know there's already, I think, been a, a lawsuit about the 10%. Is, is 10% the goal to reduce the workforce? Or what is the number that we should think about or that you're planning? Yes. Uh, so Tesla is reducing the salaried workforce by roughly 10% um, over the next probably three months or so. Um, the... Uh, we expect to grow our, our um, hourly workforce. Uh, well, it's quite clear that we expect to grow our, our, our hourly workforce, um, but we uh, we grew very fast with, on the on the salaried side, um, and we grew a little too fast in some areas, and so it requires a reduction in the salaried workforce. And we're about two thirds uh, hourly and one third salary. So I guess. Technically, a 10% reduction in the salaried workforce is only roughly a 3 3.5% reduction in total headcount. Tesla CEO Elon Musk there speaking with Bloomberg Editor-in-Chief John Micklethwaite from the Qatar Economic Forum in Doha. I want to break some of that down with our own Ed Ludlow. Let's start on Tesla since right. that's where uh, they ended. What's the significance of what we learned right there? Yeah, I, I think that the main takeaway and what he goes on to say is that demand is really strong that they have a really long wait list for their vehicles. And he talked about how they need to build more factories quicker. And the point he was making in that piece of tape is that they are reducing 10% of salaried staff. The salaried staff is only a third of the workforce. So it kind of nets out at a 3 to 3.5% 3 reduction of headcount globally. And Tesla kind of ballooned, right, over the last few years to 100,000 employees. They're kind of trimming back in some areas, according mm -hmm. to Musk, and then focusing on priority, which is people that actually build stuff, the cars, the battery packs around the world. Talking about other people that are building stuff, the employees yes. at Twitter probably yes. didn't get an answer uh, yeah. one way or another whether or not he's going to go through with the deal. You know, it was it was like recent appearances by Musk. He did not explicitly state that he is committed to the deal as it's outlined, $54.20 a share. You know, he, he kind of went through the motions and he gave this caveat that he was trying to do deposition minimization. He didn't want to get into legal trouble because it's a pending deal, but still problems with bots still need a shareholder vote to make this happen. We keep forgetting that. And the debt, real quick reference of debt, $13 billion of debt committed by banks, and he seems to suggest that that too is not solid. I wonder how much it doesn't help that he thinks a recession is likely at yeah. some point. And Twitter along with the rest of the markets, has taken a turn. Yeah, continuation of his thoughts, right? He said previously he has a super bad feeling about the economy, referencing an internal memo, and he said that, you know, a recession is kind of going to happen at some point. The economy is cyclical. That makes sense. But is it going to happen in the near term? He said more likely than not. Twitter's market cap 
$29 billion yes. at the end of this trading session. He did talk about Doge, and we yeah. had some interesting commentary there, along with his support for cryptocurrencies. So Dogecoin is really interesting. He clarified, first of all, he's not suggesting that people go out and invest in cryptocurrencies. That was part of the question that was put to him. He said, I'm not saying that. He said that he went across the factory floors of Tesla, SpaceX, and he has workers, you know, engineers, all kinds of people in the workforce saying to him, we're invested in Dogecoin. Can you support it? And he says that's his rationale for supporting it. And of course, he's bought Dogecoin himself. You can buy Tesla merchandise, not vehicles, but merchandise mm -hmm. using Dogecoin. So he seems to be suggesting that his support is because he has a wide network of employees that also support the cryptocurrency. Um, and he kind of made the, the Bitcoin side of things with Tesla's holdings being a very small, inconsequential part of the balance sheet. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. A little bit more meat on the bones there at Ludlow. Thank you for your analysis. That's the sound of Apple workers in Tosin, Maryland, just outside of Baltimore, which just became the first Apple retail store in the country to unionize. Store employees voted overwhelmingly to unionize, 65 to 33, and this is likely just the beginning, as more stores are expected to organize around the world. In recent months, we've seen more and more workers at tech companies unionize, but with the tightening labor market and the economy turning down, how much influence can they have? For more, I'm joined by William Gould the fourth. He is the former chairman of the National Labor Relations Board, a scholar on labor law at Stanford Law School, and author of the book For Labor to Build Upon Wars, Depression, and Pandemic. William, thank you so much for joining us. So look, the vote wasn't even close. What does that tell you about the chances that this is going to happen at many more Apple stores? Well, I think it's likely that it will happen at uh, many more uh, stores. We don't know really how many uh, it's likely to be, but uh, clearly something is happening. Uh, we've been talking for a long time about uh, the unrelenting decline of organized labor and the absence of organized labor from tech altogether. Uh, that's beginning to change a bit. How much, uh, we don't know. I think there are a number of factors and issues which have uh, uh, made this possible, but uh, there's no doubt about the fact that something is happening and uh, it's quite uh, feasible, possible, that it will happen elsewhere, uh, there and in other companies. Apple has said in a statement about the possibility of this happening in the past, we're fortunate to have incredible retail team members and we deeply value everything they bring to Apple. We're pleased to offer very strong compensation and benefits for full-time and part-time employees, including health care, tuition reimbursement, new parental leave, paid family leave, annual stock grants, and many other benefits. You know, how do you think the benefits that Apple, which is, to be fair, one of the wealthiest companies in the world, compare to what workers in unions elsewhere receive, you would think they'd be a step above the rest. I don't know that they're a step above the unionized sector of the economy, but they're certainly a step above uh, a number of them. I think that uh, probably uh, the impetus for this comes uh, uh, from a desire of uh, workers to, to shape these employment conditions with the employer, not to have them unilaterally imposed upon them, and uh, to, to address issues like uh, scheduling, like uh, safety issues. And we've seen uh, in this uh, period of uh, inflation a decline in real wages. I think all of these 
issues, a confluence of these issues and, and the circumstances that have emerged uh, in this period of uncertainty. I talk about wars and depression and pandemic in my book, and uh, uh, it's a period of uncertainty where workers uh, frequently are more likely to look to uh, unions and some kind of protective mechanism and some kind of participatory mechanism than they otherwise would. Now, uh, Amazon, of course, has been facing unionization efforts uh, of its own at warehouses, a vote in Staten Island, for example, to unionize. I recently sat down with Amazon CEO Andy Jassy and asked for his response to these efforts. Take a listen to what he had to say. We happen to think they're better off without a union for a number of reasons, um, including the fact that you know, it's it's much harder uh, when you have a union to have a direct relationship with your manager and to get things done quickly. Amazon's labor union, interestingly, filed a charge over those remarks that he made to me. I'm curious what you see as the parallels between Apple and Amazon and what the, the difference between a wave of tech unionizations, how, how that compares to the history of unions in this country. Well, there there have been uh, waves of uh, of uh, trade union movement uh, at various points. Uh, uh, the Great Depression, World War II, are some of the most recent uh, illustrations uh, uh, when uh, workers are uh, don't know really what's uh, uh, what lies ahead. Um, uh, this this idea that uh, uh, we can just sit down and work things out. Uh, together is fine so long as the worker really has a say in it. And I think that the uh, what the workers are saying through uh, these initiatives in tech and Amazon, Amazon's a very formidable uh, effort because there's so many employees that you uh, have to organize in one uh, in one uh, swoop. Uh, you know, the, the Staten Island being uh, approximately 8,000 workers. That's a tough thing for, for a union to do. And they were able to do it effectively in part because they were able to uh, it was a it was an independent groundswell the, the workers came to the union um, uh, the union is not coming to the workers and that's the mm -hmm. way it's been in every period of great union growth I don't know that this is going to be a great period of union growth I think we're uh, we're in early days so what do you think these tech companies, Apple, Amazon, et cetera, should pre prepare for? How do you see this playing out? Are they just going to have to pay these employees a lot more, give them much better benefits? What does it look like on the other side? I think the big thing is the, to, uh, it's not simply a matter of benefits, it's a matter of uh, uh, a worker involvement, worker participation um, in determining uh, scheduling, in uh, input into uh, safety issues, which have become so important in this uh, pandemic uh, uh, era in a number of uh, contexts. And, uh, and they're going to have to, in some instances, uh, uh, really come through with uh, uh, money for workers who, as I said, see their real wages declining for uh, reasons that are totally beyond uh, uh, their control, and it seems at the present anybody's control. All right. Well, certainly a very long chapter yet to be written here. William Gould, former chair of the National Labor Relations Board, Stanford Law professor, really appreciate having your perspective here today on the show.
Coming up, changes are coming to Meta as it shifts its algorithm to bring more creators to the platform. Creators you may not have heard of before and expand into the metaverse. We'll explain it all next. This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop. Customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. Meta has big plans for creators as it looks for ways to continue to expand, especially in the metaverse. Mark Zuckerberg has announced new ways for creators to make money, including through NFTs, reels, and even from paid online events and subscriptions. On top of trying to lure more creators to better compete with TikTok, Meta is also shifting its algorithm. Since the invention of Facebook's newsfeed, the company has been focused on delivering content that it knows users want to see. However, after more than a decade, it's becoming clear some users need a little more to stay engaged. The success of TikTok has unearthed a new kind of algo magic, giving people content they didn't even know they wanted to see. This is why creators with little followings have been able to gain massive traction on TikTok, but less so on Meta's platforms. Now. Mark Zuckerberg wants to change all that. For more on all this, I'm joined by Bloomberg's tech editor, Sarah Fryer. So talk to us about what Meta, a.k.a. Facebook, is doing here and if it's going to work. It's really a big bet to focus on showing people content from people they don't already follow, that they haven't already expressed interest in, in the hopes of helping those people build a following as creators. But it's really risky um, because it, it just flies in the face of, of all of the curation you've done of your feed, who you've decided who you want to follow, who you're friends with, et cetera, um, Meta is deciding that it thinks it has something to show you that might be better, uh, and it might or might not work. So it's a big moment of experimentation. They're really betting the company on this because 
if they can't make money um, from this pivot, then you won't be able to, to really fund the metaverse and they won't have the creator relationships that they need to take into the metaverse eventually. How are creators looking at the differences between a TikTok and a Facebook or an Instagram? Well, creators have their audiences on um, on Instagram that, have, that they where they really have this like back and forth relationship. Um, there's a, it's easier to connect in some ways on Instagram than it is on TikTok. But TikTok is is really offering people an opportunity for more followings and is considered the easier place to become famous overnight uh, compared to Instagram, which is already kind of established. And and Facebook is simply not top of mind for young people anymore and that's another thing that the company really needs to change so they're leaning on instagram and they're also leaning on changes to facebook itself that are going to help draw in young people and make them more entertainment destinations than simple social networks um that's all trying to compete with tiktok however um, you know this this is what they really need to do to stay relevant and it if it doesn't work um, then they're going to have have um, potentially alienated some people who have depended on the platforms working the way they already do. Fascinating. A, a big bet indeed. Uh, we'll be watching to see how that one plays out. Bloomberg's Sarah Fryer, our tech editor, and also the book uh, about Instagram, no filter. Thank you. Welcome back to Bloomberg Technology. I'm Emily Chang in San Francisco. Time now for some tech news you might have missed. Uber is bringing back its shared ride service for the first time since the pandemic. It's now called UberX Share instead of Uber Pool, joining Lyft, which reactivated carpool services in some markets back in May. Bloomberg's Ed Ludlow here with the details. Ed, what do we know? Yeah, it's interesting. So if you choose to do UberX Share, you get partnered with a co-rider. So it's just you and one other person. And Uber says that it uses its algorithms to calculate your co-rider based on your route and who gets dropped off first depends on the route. There might be periods of time where you're riding on your own and someone gets in. You might be riding as a two and someone gets out and you carry on on your own the rest of the way. And they're introducing this in limited markets, including LA, New York City, San Francisco. In fact, we have this tweet from somebody that noticed the news in New York City, <laughs> channeling their inner pandemic experience or pre-pandemic experience, just with a bit of banter, excited for a summer of chaotic encounters in the back of a Nissan Altima. We can all relate. I remember Uber Pool and other shared ride services pre-pandemic, right? And you could have three or four people in the car. You're all in the back, like somebody's got a briefcase, an umbrella, a dog, whatever's going on. This is kind of different, but it's going to be interesting to see the psychology of how users react to this after the pandemic. I mean, look at the shared performance right of Uber and Lyft since June of 2020 when things started to recover in the share price after the initial shock of the pandemic and we're still down significantly right Uber's story has been one where they've diversified the business with Uber Eats Lyft you know we've been debating in the recent weeks and quarters about whether the demand is really there how much both of these uh, companies will have to do to incentivize riders and drivers and how that will weigh on the bottom line. Interesting, in the case of UberX Share, if you opt for that, you get an immediate 20% discount on your ride, which could be a way to lure people in. Right, and you see Uber and Lyft just trading in tandem yeah. really there. I, I, I got to ask, 
why why did they change the name? I mean, UberX Share yeah. doesn't just doesn't have the same ring as UberPool. Yeah, I latched onto this as well. So what Uber say in their blog post is that after the pandemic shut down shared rides in 2020, they did a complete revamp. Right, they did pilots around the world in different markets. They redesigned the feature and this is the core principle right it's not really a pool of people it's a co-sharing ride that it's you and one other person and it's limited i'd also point out that this, there's no mask requirement at least here in san francisco right and uber is saying that it's at the comfort level of riders whether they wear a mask but that's the key point it's just one and another not a big pool of riders like uber pool and i think that's kind of the mainstay of why they've changed the name right i can only imagine the awkward mask no mask awkward. conference it's right. <laughs> okay at Ludlow. Thank you. Following the recent collapse in token prices, one crypto lender is covering its bases. BlockFi has asked for FTX's help to get more cash with a $250 million revolving credit facility, to be precise. This to avoid the same fate that other lenders have faced, like Celsius and Babel, which froze withdrawals on their platforms. Here to break it all down, our crypto contributor, Shanali Basik. You scratch your back, I'll scratch mine, <laughs> I guess. And there's some deals that come from a position of weakness and some from a position of strength and all that. Remember, as you said, some of the rivals to BlockFi had paused withdrawals. And now you have uh, BlockFi, after also recently acknowledging that it had to liquidate a large client, taking some funds from FTX. Remember, when you look at why, why this happened, you have SBF, uh, Sam Bankman-Fried, saying that sometimes Sometimes leadership means acting decisively, and that's what BlockFi did, removing troublesome counterparties before they became a problem and adding cash before it was necessary. Remember, uh, Sam Bankman-Fried's Alameda Research also had extended credit to Voyager Digital as well as a safeguard for client assets in light of this very volatile crypto market environment. And you know, you look at what people are saying about the whole thing, and Sam Bankman-Fried is FTX the white knight here. Uh, you know, Anthony Scaramucci told Blue Bloomberg, it makes him the JP Morgan of the crypto industry. And to talk about deals also that come from a position of strength, they also announced a deal to acquire an FTX US, a deal to acquire Embed, a clearing firm as it looks to expand. Interesting. Okay, Shanali, stay with us. I want to talk now about how the world of NFTs will evolve amidst this crypto winter. Our next guest, Zhou Shenyin, who is the CEO of the NFT startup Magic Eden, which I know you mentioned earlier in the show, and backed by Lightspeed Venture Partners and Sequoia joining us now. So, look, uh, Zhou Shen, this is the start of uh, NFT NYC, I believe. Last year was a big year for NFTs, but we've seen the market quiet down. What's the impact of the crypto winter been on the NFT market and how do you see that playing out? Yeah, first of all, thanks so much for having me. I think, yeah, definitely there has been a broader downturn and macro impact recently. I think from our point of view at Magic Eden, though, it's been the last few months has been going from strength to strength. Um, so we are one of the fastest growing marketplaces in the world. We are about 90% market share on Solana. We 
uh, in May actually was the largest ever month for us. So it's been about a 10x growth from the last time we raised. Uh, so I think from our point of view, we still see pretty significant demand from uh, creators as well as end users to come and interact with and discover NFTs. And you know, the way we think about it is it's a long-term time horizon here. We, we sort of measure success on a multi-year cycle and you know, ups and downs are part and parcel with crypto. So we're here for the long haul and super excited to be announcing this today. How is Magic Eden different from other NFT marketplaces like OpenSea? Yeah, great question. Uh, this comes up a lot, actually, and uh, the reason we started Magic Eden was, was very intentional. Um, so for us, like, we consider ourselves a very, very community-centric and, and, and deeply creator-focused marketplace. Um, what does that mean exactly? It means that this permeates everything that, that we do. Uh, so for example, one of the earliest products that we built was actually a, a launch pad, which is an end-to-end create a tool and create a service that helps creators launch NFT collections. Um, secondly, we actually partner with collections through the entire journey. So not just at launch, but through the end-to-end -end, uh, experience where they may want to build a custom embedded marketplace. We're also a partner for that. Um, and then on the community side, I really think that it's important to consider marketplaces as more than just the point of sale. So we actually want to work with communities to, to actually be there uh, around the entire discovery journey, whether it's you know, analytics, whether it's research, uh, whether it's actually the point of sale, we want to be there. So I think from our point of view, we're really excited to continue building for the future. Um, and for us, um, that means you know, continuing to expand the team, continuing to mm -hmm. grow the line of products. So we're super excited about that. So you made a very specific decision to be a Solana NFT marketplace. And yeah. I'm really curious, you know, find faster speeds, lower transaction costs, but also real outages. So what's the trade-off here? And what are some of the things that are going to need to be worked through mm -hmm. to make this a viable solution? Yeah, for sure. So it's obviously still very early. And I think the trade-off here with going with Solana was that it's a, it's a newer chain. Right, so they're still working through a lot of the growing pains, and you know, as much as we have grown over the last nine months, which has been pretty insane, they are experiencing something similar. But we have obviously huge faith in what they're doing, and the decision to launch there was very intentional because the cost of experimentation is lower when the ch when, when transactions are cheaper, and for us that means more creators, more end users who are willing to come and try NFTs for the first time, and you know, hopefully that means. That'll continue to grow over the long term, and, and we want to be here as a part of that. I'm wondering about NFT pricing also here, because you've seen things sell for uh, extraordinary amounts in the last year, millions and millions of dollars, and some of those same assets are now trading for a lot less. Uh, and so what is a normal price here? <laughs> what it, where does the market start to stabilize? What is the average uh, 2022 price of an NFT? Uh, it's really hard to say. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I could answer that for you. But I think overall, we, we definitely see strong demand still for NFTs. Um, you know, effectively, I think about NFTs in a really similar way in terms of a market cycle to where fungible tokens were four or five years ago. So it's okay to talk about prices up, down, sideways. Ultimately, what matters is like, look at the trajectory of the growth. Fungible tokens became, became a trillion dollar market, right? And NFTs, I think, are a much more applicable technology to many, many things across the spectrum of culture. So uh, regardless of where we see the price end up, uh, I think there's a lot to build. Josh, and I have to ask you about Bill Gates's remarks recently about the NFT market. He said it's entirely based on the greater fool theory and then added, obviously, expensive digital images of monkeys are going to improve the world immensely with not a small dose of sarcasm. What is Bill Gates getting wrong? 
Uh, I mean, Bill, come and, come and try out Magic Eden. We'd love to have you on the platform. No, I think the couple of things that I would call out is that, yeah, we're very early in the general NFT category, NFT ecosystem. Um, yeah, like profile pictures, you know, they may not seem like something that's very interesting or very exciting to a lot of people, but the reality is that they got very popular and they're fun, they're social, it's at the intersection of culture, um, and they have permeated a lot of society. I think one of the things that we are really excited about is uh, enabling more forms of utility for these NFTs. So part of this raise is actually going to go towards building out a gaming vertical at Magic Eden. And you know, gaming is an inherently social activity. It's where communities already gather. Uh, and you can imagine the same, the same types of behavior where people are buying items and skins already that are not crypto related. People are going to be doing those things with NFTs. And, the cool thing about that is that it's, uh, it's actually you know, true ownership that's happening here. So it's early. I mean, we invite Bill to come on and, and check out Magic Eden. We'd, we'd happily walk him through all the, all the I'm infrastructure. I'm wondering also if you can speak a little to the overall fundraising environment here, because you're a yep. rare company that was able to see a tenfold surge in valuation since March, mind you, yep. right? So how hard is it out there to actually raise money? What are investors looking for mm -hmm. when they're putting their money to work? Yeah, I'd say it's, it's absolutely tougher right now than it was probably two, three months ago, for sure. Uh, but I still think that if you are a really high quality team with clarity of thought, clarity of vision, strong execution, uh, long-term focused investors will still you know, want to do these deals. And I think Magic Eden is a testament to that, where you know, despite a deteriorating market over the last couple of months, uh, our numbers have been as strong as ever, and we actually had a lot of appetite uh, and interest inbound from both our existing investors in the previous round and, and new investors. So there is appetite still to do deals, but I think the implication is you need to, there's, there's a longer dating period, shall we say, right, with a lot of teams and investors, and I think that's actually probably healthy for the market. So obviously you're optimistic. Paint the picture five years out. What does the NFT market look like? How much is it worth? What problems is it solving? Yeah, I think the NFT market will be a trillion dollar market. Uh, going back to the point earlier around sort of mimicking the growth of fungible tokens, I do believe that NFTs will permeate many, many different types of assets. And uh, one of the things that we're really pumped about is let's explore the universe of gaming NFTs. Let's explore the universe of music NFTs. Uh, I really don't think that it all stops with profile pictures. And um, this is a very inherently social experience. It's, uh, it permeates a lot of different things around culture. And um, you know, hopefully, this is just the beginning, and it spurs a lot of other amazing innovation in the NFT space. So we're just stoked to be a part of it, and hopefully we can push the ecosystem forward with a lot of other builders out there. Josh Yin, CEO of Magic Eden, and our very own Shanali Basik. Thank you both. Coming up, the future of work and how to power it. We'll speak about all that and more with Coral CEO Krista Quarles, who's also got a view on the markets and lived through her share of downturns. She joins us next. This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. 
Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. In this week's Techonomics, we bring you the story of Coral, a developer of business productivity graphics and operating system solutions that wants to drive the future of work and compete against the likes of VMware and Citrix. Coral's CEO, Krista Quarles, joins me now to talk about this vision and more. So how do you intend to compete with Citrix, VMware, which are, to be fair, giants in the tech space? They definitely are giants. If you look at our largest product, it's Parallels, uh, which, as many people know, enables you to do such things as running Windows on a Mac. Um, but it's more than that. So we have the desktop solution that millions of people enjoy and love and enable them to do a better job. But we also have a server cloud, and, and we just bought a company this week that enables us to be anywhere. So you don't have to download it, anything, but really about a zero-trust security way of streaming applications. And so as we think about the virtualization space, there are the big giants like Citrix and VMware who are really serving clients that have 5,000 and up consumers. We're here to make it easy for every company, every worker in every company to work from wherever they want, be it the coffee shop, the sofa, the office, in a really secure and easy way. You've been around the block, Krista, at, you were the CEO of OpenTable. You've been through some ups and downs when it comes to the markets. How do you see the shift to remote work playing out? Is this here for good? Are some companies going to regret telling their employees they could work from home forever? I think the genie is clearly out of the bottle. Uh, if you look at pre-pandemic work, you know, a lot of that came from what it was like to come into a factory. It didn't imagine a world where Zoom and collaboration tools and software really enabled people's daily lives. And we believe that when you work better, you live better. And people don't want to give that up. We've seen that in how people are willing to accept a salary decrease for not having to come into the office. And I think the companies that remain abject about their desire to get people in, they are going to suffer as it relates to where talent wants to 
to go. That's not to say we don't gather. It's not to say that we don't get people together. But my, I believe that your personal productivity pod should be where you ever you want it to be, and you should be able to connect securely and hopefully use some of our products while you do so. So Elon Musk calling workers back in the office. Do you think he's going to be on the wrong side of history? I mean, could this hurt companies that are forcing employees to come back to the office? I think it's all about understanding also what your business is. We have the benefit of being what I like to say, we're in the bits business and not the atoms business, <laughs> meaning we ship software. We don't have a physical product. Obviously, they're delivering a large and complex physical product with a supply chain to boot. And I think there are times in which he's, he needs to demonstrate from a cultural standpoint how those people need to come in. I think if you're building software, which is our case, uh, we can be more flexible and we can lean in and give the knowledge worker not just flexibility, but freedom, which is ultimately what they're seeking. You lived through the dot-com bust, and I'm curious how you think this compares. Do you think a recession is inevitable? And if so, is it a big R or a little R? <laughs> Yeah, this is my second downturn, and so it's always interesting to see people who have just been operating for the last 13 years and think it's fully representative. It does feel to me more like the dot-com bust, how, albeit with much higher interest rates. And so I do think it is a big R recession. Anytime inflation is north of 5%, you're going to have a pretty significant challenge out there in the market. I think it's a question of how quickly do companies respond? I was at a, an event the other day, and so Somebody said, uh, unit economics are the new black. And I thought it was amusing because, you know, I come from the private equity landscape uh, as we're backed by KKR. And unit economics have always been a mainstay of our business. And it will need to be so going forward for many other companies. So how do you think this is going to impact the broader landscape of, of all of these tech unicorns that have raised money at high valuations on top of these huge public tech companies that have been enjoying very nice multiples and, you know, will they recover? Well, I think if you need to raise capital, that capital got significantly more expensive. Uh, you know, two to you know the flat round is the new up round, and I think the reality is, you know, how are managers, employees going to respond in this environment? So when the dollar is up, oil is up, and interest rates are up, it means equity has to be down. And when equity is down, the primary driver of uh, tech workers who work for the equity, they get cranky and it's getting more challenging. And by the way, they might be losing a job. And so the whole ecosystem is being thrust into this world where the cost of capital is such that you cannot grow at any price. You've got to grow at a thoughtful unit economic driven price. So how is this all going to impact the war for talent? On the one hand, you've had the great resignation and, and workers who are deciding, you know what, I just don't want to do this anymore and I have all of these options. Now you see uh, the market contracting. People don't necessarily have that kind of optionality. There are layoffs and hiring freezes happening across the tech industry. How do those two balance each other out? I think you have to look at which labor market you're in. So I would be very concerned if you are in a market like San Francisco or New York, where your you know cost of your labor generally is higher than cost of other labor out there in the marketplace. I think what it's done is created a level playing field for talent across not just the United States but across the globe. And you know we 
clearly employ uh, developer teams outside of the United States. We think it's a critical advantage for us as an organization, but I think it, it is a great leveling of talent too. It, it used to be that you had to be at a certain location to manage and benefit from the ecosystem. And now I think that's gone as, as our tools and our collaboration software enables people to truly be effective from any place. So it's a great leveler for talent. Okay, so if it's a great level of her talent, who wins and who loses? Uh, if you're a San Francisco engineer, it could be problematic. Um, but great talent is always always a need. And I think what you see in some of these companies who've raised exceptionally large rounds, they couldn't even hire their, uh, you know, according to their hiring plan. Um, but you're also going to see those hiring plans get dramatically scaled back. I think, you know, I talk about management by haiku. If you uh, had no bounds, you could do anything, but you might not be as creative as you otherwise would have been. So how do you manage within 17 syllables? And that's still build a great product and I think that's where a lot of people look at the incredible companies that get born out of recession because they had to be mindful and choosy about where they spent their money. Management by Haiku, that is a new one for me. <laughs> I will remember it. Coral CEO, Krista Corals, thank you. As always, good to have you back here on the show. And that does it for this edition of Bloomberg Technology. We're going to be back tomorrow with a number of great guests. Slack CEO and co-founder Stuart Butterfield will be with us, along with Shopify president Harley Finkelstein, to talk about new features the company is launching. Don't forget to check out our new podcast as well. Wherever you get your podcasts, this is Bloomberg. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.